We are at our second to the last lecture, uh, this one being divine immutability. Um, immutability just means, very simply, that God does not change. Now, to one extent or another, all Christians affirm that God does not change. The disagreement is to the extent in which God does not change. Of course, Everyone agrees God's nature doesn't change. He doesn't go from loving to unloving, just to unjust. That always remains the same. The disagreement comes when it is how God relates with us. Do God's plans change? Does God's will change? Does God's emotions and so on and so forth change toward us? Now, that's going to be where we're going to have a, a good time discussing these things because, uh, well, I don't have it all sorted out. No one really has it all sorted out. And so we'd have a good time trying to talk our way through it and figure out what's going on. And we'll do that this week and next week. Next week, we're going to be wrapping up with um, what's called divine um, impassibility. So immutability this week, impassibility next week, passibility being passions, emotions. Um, We'll get into that. God's emotions not changing, and it'll be another fun discussion. So, but tonight... God does not change. And so, I want to just give you a very brief survey of the Scriptures. Now, God's unchanging nature is pretty well testified to in the Scriptures. You find it all over the place. You find it, well, all over the place. So, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, the unknown author of that epistle says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's other places in Hebrews that I haven't listed here where we find that affirmed as well, most famously in Hebrews chapter 6, where uh, God swears by his own unchangeable nature so that by the power of two unchangeable things, God, his word and his nature, he uh, validates his covenant. Uh, Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, I think this is the most explicit one. For I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, right? Change his ways. He's done something wrong. He needs to change course. He has, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Again, implying what God has said, what God has spoken, he will fulfill. He will not deviate from his course. And then my favorite of them all, James chapter 1 verse 17, and this is something of a a center of gravity for me. I'm always revolving around this, and if you pay attention, it comes up at least every third sermon. I'm referencing this verse. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing comes from God, and God Himself with Him. There is no variation or shifting shadow, as there would be with the heavenly bodies, the sun passing over the shifting shadows, etc., etc. You get the point that James is making. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit later. There are also other scriptures that seem to say the exact opposite, that God does change. Um, Exodus chapter 32, 1 Samuel 15 Um, Amos chapter 7, 
a few places in Isaiah and Jeremiah where God, it specifically says, God changed his mind. God repented. Um, Genesis chapter 6, God repented from ever creating man. There seems to be these two, again, these two sets of data that we have to make sense of, and we'll do that a little bit later. But for now, there are those scriptures. And what I would like to do is, at least having generically defined the doctrine, now we're going to get into, um, or at least we're going to explain it, hopefully, um, and get it out in some good terms. So, like all things in the Godhead, the doctrine of divine impassibility naturally flows from the doctrine of divine aseity. Remember, we covered that a couple weeks ago. So we'll do a little bit of rehash to catch up. Aseity is God's from himselfness, right? That is, God is entirely self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing because God has life in himself. John chapter 5, verse 26. As opposed to us. Remember, we did that little thought experiment. We depend upon countless factors outside of ourselves that sustain our life, right? We need what Jesus calls our daily bread. And without our daily bread, right? Not just food, but sleep and shelter and all these other countless factors. Without that, we would return to the dust from which we came. Now, God, however, is his own daily bread. He is his own food. He is his own drink. He is his own life. He is ase from himself. Remember, Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25, how the Apostle Paul articulated the doctrine of God's aseity. He says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And here's the important part for us. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all people life and breath and all things. God isn't served by human hands because we can't give to God anything that he hasn't first given to us. He has no needs because he's entirely self-sufficient. Now, as it pertains to us, that means that we can neither add anything nor subtract anything from God. The point of aseity that we're drawing out here, the bottom line is that God is not contingent or dependent upon us or anything else to be who he is, right? God's love, his justice, his life, none of those are contingent or dependent. God is simply who he is. So here's where we make the jump from divine aseity to divine immutability. If there is nothing in God's existence or his life that is given to him by the creature, if we can add nothing to God, if we can't replenish God, then it follows that he cannot undergo change. If we can't add anything to God and God is simply who he is, then he cannot undergo change. We'll draw that out more in a minute. But all that means, all that we mean to say is that we cannot make him any more loving or just or merciful or any less loving, just or merciful than He already and always is. He is who He is with or without us, right? He's not dependent upon creation. So let's look at Stephen Carnock. I think that's right. Charnock, Carnock, 
I don't know. But he is um, he's becoming one of my favorite theologians. Here's what he has to say. He who hath not been from another, so he doesn't derive what he is from somewhere else, he says, cannot but be always what he is. God is the first being, an independent being. He was not produced of himself or any other, but by nature always hath been, and therefore cannot by himself or any other be changed from what he is in his own nature. Okay, right, that's fairly straightforward what he's saying there. So, in other words, God's independence demands his immutability. If God is from himself, it necessarily entails that he's unchangeable. Now, again, if nothing can be added to or taken from God, he must always be the same. So how are we doing on that one? Any questions, any comments before we make one more jump? Okay. Again, maybe that's a little bit, uh, it was for me, uh, uh, that line of reasoning a little bit hard to follow. But again, it was only my intention to show you that one attribute of God, aseity, necessarily entails and implies the other immutability. Because, again, in all our theological reasoning about God, it comes down to aseity. Everything flows from there. That's, that's really ground zero of divinity. So I just wanted to, um, to make that case. But as it pertains to God's immutability, his unchangeableness, the easier line of reasoning to follow is that of being and becoming. Being and becoming, and we'll explain that. This is from um, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. We've been going back to him again and again. He says, The difference between the creator and the creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. So if you put God over here and creatures over here, the difference is that God is being and creatures are in a state of becoming are in a process of becoming. God is in a state of being, and creatures are in a process of becoming. So let's start with the creature and then move to the creator. Now, um, when I was putting this lecture together a while back, I had the intention to show you guys a video, but because our sound system is ripped out, it's just, it'd be, anyway, I didn't do it. Um, but the video is a father who did a time-lapse uh, a 20-year time-lapse of his daughter. And he took a video of her every month for every year of her life. And he squishes it all into five minutes. And, um, you know, going through YouTube, it came across and I watched it. And it's incredibly moving to watch this little baby grow up and develop literally right before your eyes and watch her go through all the states of development, all the processes of human life. You watch you know, all her young, goofy days and then get into her teenage years and you see her crying on camera and you see her sad days, her moody days, her angsty days, and anyway, till she finally matures. And the point of the video, and you can look it up for yourself, it's just type in uh, daughter time-lapse on YouTube, but the point is that what we see is the daughter's becoming physically emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. We watch her grow up into herself and uh, develop into the person who she is, constantly 
changing along the way. And again, the point is that creatures, what the video illustrates, is that we are never fully in possession of ourselves. We are always in the process of becoming something else. We are losing things to the past. We're awaiting things in the future. And we just have this one slice, this one moment, and everything is either received or lost in time. So, again, that's the point, what it means to say that we are in a state of becoming. We're always becoming something else. We're either progressing or digressing, but never static. Another way to say this, the way theologians talk about it, is to say that we have potential. As creatures, we are necessarily incomplete, but we have the capacity to develop and strive toward our yet unrealized potential. We are not what we are. We are not what we could be, but we're on our way toward fulfillment. I guess another way to say it is that we're always coming of age. Even if our body's decaying, hopefully the inner man, the inner woman is always coming of age. It's always coming to maturity. There's always this process of development. So as long as we're coming of age, we're always going to be changing. That's what it means to be a creature. That's what contingent reality is. And of course, that's obvious, but not so with God. He is not in the process of becoming but he is in a state of being. That is, there isn't development or progress in the life of God. He doesn't lose anything to the past. He doesn't await anything from the future. Rather, he's fully realized in the eternal present. In other words, he doesn't have potential. There's nothing latent in God to which he can refine the raw materials and become more than he already is. He, he doesn't become anything because God simply is. Now, that may be fairly obvious to us, and I think it is, but again, I want to say that because there's theologies that deny that. They're called, it's called process theology, and it was fairly popular 10, 20 years ago that God is also in a process of discovering himself, that he exists alongside the world, and as the world develops, God develops, and so on and so forth. But it's just, it's just it doesn't stand up, um, even just to, to basic reason. But it's perfectly described in Psalm 102, verses 26 and 27. The psalmist speaking of God in creation says, Even they will perish, but you endure. Right? Created things are becoming what they are, and then they're fading out of existence. They're going back into nothingness. But he says, you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So again, there's the difference between creator and creature, between divine and not divine. One is in a process of becoming, change, of development and eventually deterioration back to nothing, God simply is. Okay, so any questions? We're going to move forward and talk a little about anything else. Again, fairly straightforward. So without immutability, um, it's impossible to confess God's 
perfection. If God is perfect, we must necessarily say that God is unchangeable. Again, Carnock says, if God doth change, it must be either to a greater perfection than he had before or to a less. If to a better, he was not perfect, and so was not God. If to the worse, he will, be, he will not be perfect, and so be no longer God after that change. We'll come back to that in just a second. G.L. Emery, a Frenchman, he builds upon Carnock's insight by saying, a change requires the acquisition of something new, the, the introducing of something that was not there before. To deny immutability signifies that God acts or finds himself in movement in order to acquire something he was previously lacking. And this would shatter the plentitude and perfection of being that pertains to him. Okay, so rather than me saying anything, what do you guys think? Does that line of reasoning sound? Is that sound? Does it sound pretty straightforward? Yeah? Right, if God changes, it's a change for the better or for the worse. If for the better, then he wasn't God before. If for the worse, then he's no longer God. A, a perfect being, right, has to be without change. Um, why? why? Why is it that a perfect being has to be without change? Because potential for change, uh, like, like we have, it implies progress, and progress implies imperfection, or at least, um, or at least the need to grow. Barney, you have a question? Yes. Amen. Yeah, well, I mean, you articulated what Paul talks about. You know, we are being conformed, Romans 8, into the likeness of Christ. You know, he's the firstborn among many brethren, and our state of becoming is is a becoming into that image. Christ is that image. He became the perfect man, so on and so forth, and even aiming toward the divine. So, agree 100%. And so, again, that if God has the potential for change, there's progress in God, and if there's progress, there's imperfection, or if not imperfection, then the need to grow, right? Maybe God needs to mature up into himself, and therefore, he's not fully realized, and he's not yet perfect. But if, again, God is perfect, there is no uh, progress to be made. He, he, there is no potential in God that needs to be actualized. And if there's no potential, again, then he's incapable of change. So I would go so far as to say God's essence, his attributes, and his works in relation to us are not liable to change for the better or for the worse because they're already perfect. They're already perfect. So I'll go so far as to say that I do not believe in relation to us God's plans actually change. I won't, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not a, I don't believe in everything is predetermined in the sense that God wills everything that happens, but I believe God's plans are, um, are fixed and we're incorporated into them. We'll come to that later, but just to play my hand a little bit. A little bit. Um, so, and here's the point. We're going to state this last thing, and then we're going to move on and get into some of the fun stuff. So, 
if God is without potential, theologians say that God is pure act. Um, it's a philosophical term, but it, it's really helpful. If God is pure act, that means that there is nothing dormant in God that needs to be activated. Rather, he's perfectly realized. His attributes, love, justice, and power, and whatever else is in God, cannot wax or wane. They cannot become um, greater or lesser because they are already and always have been the standard of perfection. Um, they're in perfect actuality, right? There's not, God's love can't become anything less. It can't become anything more because it's at that perfect, I say limit, there's no limits on it. It's the perfect infinity. It's the perfect realization of um, that particular attribute within God. But again, even that language is misleading. Uh, God is not perfect because he's perfected his potential. That somehow in creation and redemption, uh, God's attributes reach a perfection that they didn't have before, uh, but rather he's perfection itself, right? So we'll sometimes say that like, you know, well, never mind. That's a discussion for another time. So therefore, here's the point where I want to make. We can confidently affirm um, without fear or reservation the incorruptibility of God. There is nothing in the created order that can break in and tinker with things, so to speak, as it pertains to God's perfect nature. He isn't determined by us. He isn't contingent by us. And therefore, there's nothing that can happen in the world. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that evil itself can do to corrupt God. He, he simply is. And therefore, he's incorruptible, right? You think of that passage in James chapter 1, um, where James says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Again, there's that idea that God, God cannot be corrupted because his nature is not subject to change. And therefore, right, we affirm, we say with James, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation, shadow, or shifting. And I know, right, it's one thing to affirm that doctrine, to say it here in a classroom and say, yeah, God doesn't change. But it's another thing to experience that in your own life, that when you sin and when you fail and when you um, dishonor God's name, to remember that God's nature doesn't change towards you. He doesn't have two faces. He's not one thing and then another thing. Rather, he always simply is himself. And I know that doctrine that God is uncontingent, or he's not, um, we, he's not dependent upon us or determined by us is, is a hard pill for some to swallow. We'll see that in a minute. But it really ensures that, well, God's not flying off the handle with us. God's not, he's always determined by himself, not by our actions. So yeah, though you can, you know, you, you've heard that story, right, where the atheist is like, if God's real, let him strike me down. I'll give him five minutes. And he waits on his watch and then it doesn't happen, right? To think that you could provoke God to some sort of response like that, or that your sin, I mean, yeah, you're going to reap the reward of your consequences, but that you could provoke God to be anything other than what he is. He will always be who he is. And that's the most reassuring thing as you're struggling with yourself on your, on your own process of becoming, God simply is. So anyway, with that, any questions, any comments, anything to add to that? Um, are we all good? 
Okay. So let's, let's move now to um, where people disagree with this. Because, um, again, there are quite a few, not quite a few, there's more than a few, a lot of detractors from the doctrine of divine immutability. It's a very uh, more popular belief right now because the belief that God doesn't change or that we don't affect God or have some sort of influence upon God, it's deeply at odds with modern sensibilities, right? I mean, our age, let's face it, is a very sentimental age. It's an age that you'll find, um, as we get into some of this more, has, because of that, reworked these doctrines. So an immutable God, to a lot of people, to uh, our kind of general environment right now, is understood as something, as someone who's rigid or cold or distant from our human experience, right? And so we can sympathize with that with a, a little bit, that, okay, if we don't determine God, if God simply is who he is, then uh, it feels kind of harsh, and it feels like, okay, God's like this distant, he's, he's out there, and you know, we don't really have this relationship with him. So instead, what you see happening now is that there is a God who is more, uh, who's more relatable. He exists in a genuine give-and-take relationship with his creatures. Um, I'd like to read to you a quote from James Dolezal. He says, summing up this position, they think that if God cannot change or be affected by the world in any way, then our relation to it, relationship to him seems overly one-sided and thus impersonal and non-dynamic. What do you guys think before we get into it? Do you feel that way at all? An unchangeable God is impersonal, impersonable and um, it's an over, overly one-sided relationship? Okay, all right, so what Barney's talking about is a position called relational, relational mutability, relational mutability, um, and I, it was a section I cut out of this because it was too long. Relational mutability believes that God in his nature is unchangeable, but as he relates to us, he's changeable, and uh, again, very popular, a uh, theologian named Bruce Ware teaches this, um, you guys know Don Carson, maybe? He teaches this. Um, a few others have a similar um, understanding that as he is, God doesn't change, but as he relates to us, he changes. So God actually does change from one state to another. He does change his plans with us. Um, so that's definitely one position. And we'll get into a little bit more. Um, so there's that. That's on the table. Anything else? Okay, so you're thinking... Mm-hmm. So, okay, so you're thinking 
as it pertains to creation, does God change? Or okay, okay, oh, okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I think you're articulating somewhere of where I'm at as well. Is like it, it, it's a it's a it's a hard balance, right? But I like the way you describe it. There's all this change, and yet God pervades everything, yet unchangingly. John, did you have something? Okay. Yeah, both people having their say in the relationship. Okay, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get into those passages because, again, Moses intercedes and God's ready to destroy everybody. And then Moses says, don't do it. Remember who you are. And then God's like, okay, I remember who I am. I'm not going to do it. Uh, same thing with Abraham. What if there's 10? What if there's 20? What if there's uh, same thing with uh, the First Samuel 15? So we'll look at those and we'll get into that passage because that's where people, that's where the disagreement is, right? About how, well, how do we understand those passages? What goes on there? And does God's plan actually change? Or do we experience a change when it was God's plans all along? Do we think, do we perceive a change? But there really was no change. It was already God's plan. Those type of questions we'll pick up here in a minute. Um, my wife doesn't say anything out here, but she tells me everything when we're together, <laughs> when we're away. But anyway, so let me read you um, a statement from a very popular pastor. Um, he's, you know, if you get on podcasts or whatever, you'll find his churches, sermons, all of them, they're, they're well listened to. Now, he is um, someone who believes God does indeed change. And so I'd like to read this quote, um, look at what he's saying, and then dissect it a little bit and try to give a response and see if maybe we can have some dialogue in the meantime. So he says, Yahweh isn't the unmoved mover of Aristotle. He is the relational dynamic God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who responds, who can be moved, influenced, and listen to this, who can change his mind at a moment's notice. And this isn't a lower view of God. It is a much higher view. Theologian Karl Barth called this the holy mutability of God. He would be less of a God if he couldn't change his intentions when he wants to, or to be open to new ideas from intelligent, creative beings he's in relationship with. Okay, so a fairly strong statement. Now, in his view, immutability, God's unchangeableness, is directly in odds with relationship. The way he frames it, these two things cannot coexist. If God is unchangeable, 
He can't have, can't be in relationship. Therefore, to be in relationship, God must be changeable. So again, if God couldn't change his intentions to be open to, as he says, intelligent, creative beings, he'd be incapable of being in relationship with us in any real way. And instead, to be in relationship with us, God must be able to change his mind at a moment's notice. He must be open to new ideas and plans from us because that's what a relationship is, isn't it, right? There's the give and take. There's the back and forth. You know, we're coming home from Albuquerque yesterday. I was like, are we going to eat at home or are we going to eat out? And, you know, we bartered back and forth and finally we ended up eating McDonald's, right? It's the give and take, the back and forth of relationship all throughout life. So if that's how it is with us, well, then that's how it is with God too, right? That's essentially where he's coming from. So I think that's a strong emotional argument. It certainly has that appeal to our emotions and so on and so forth. But I think theologically it doesn't stand up so well. So we're going to piece by piece tear it down and we'll have some discussion and so on and so forth. So, okay, before I say it, anyone can spot the glaring theological error that he makes there? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. A peer of God. That's a great way to put it. Right. <laughs> well, he would say he would say there's two there's two positions. You got to choose one or the other. Either right because one side scripture says God changes, like I changed my mind, uh, Exodus thirty two, and then Malachi three six God does not change. So he would say we're just preferring this one over the other one. You, you see right? You see kind of where he's coming from, Jono. Yeah, I'm so proud. Um, but yeah, no, you're. Uh, I, I think what everybody just said is a hundred percent right. The first theological error he makes is to disregard the creature-creator distinction. Just like Jeff perfectly put, he makes us appear of God. He wrongly assumes that we relate to God in the same way that humans relate to one another. Um, you remember. Tertullian's words from the very beginning, he says, it is highly inconsistent of you to put human characteristics in God rather than divine characteristics in man and clothe God in man's image rather than man with God's, right? He's, he's saying, okay, this is the, relate, the way relationships work down here, and he's projecting it upward onto God. Rather, we would say, if we want to be Faithful to the very first thing when we start to think theologically is the difference between God and man, we'd have to say, sorry, no can do. Those things, just because they work that way for here, does not mean that's how they work for God. Do you have something? Yeah. 
But what about Malachi 3.16 and these other passages? I, the Lord, do not change, right? So those are, and we'll get to that. We'll come, we'll come to that, and I will address those questions, and we'll do them in detail. Um, how are we doing? Pretty straightforward, right? So we all kind of recognize that one glaring error. Um, I'll skip through some of this. Herbert McCabe, one theologian, he says, There has been a deplorable and idolatrous tendency on the part of some Christians to diminish God. In order that God may stand in relationship with his creatures, he has made one of them, a member of the universe, subject to, taint, to change and even disappointment and suffering. So to make God more relational, we have to bring God down, at least relational in our terms, right? Um, we're going to deal with that in a second. So we make God a member of the universe and not its Lord and creator when we do that. So there's the first error. The second one is where we can clear things up a little bit, is that um, Cormer makes, uh, he makes the theological error of misunderstanding immutability altogether. Again, remember, he puts immutability and relationship at odds with one another. An immutable God, according to this perspective, is, again, cold, he's inert, he's distant, he's not relational. Um, again, which is a distortion of the doctrine of immutability. Remember what we said. God is pure act. He's pure act. Thomas Wayne Andy, moving from there, sets the record straight. He says, one should not be misled into thinking that God's immutability is like the immutability of a rock, only more so. What God and rocks appear to have in common is only the fact that they do not change. The reason for their unchangeableness is for polar opposite reasons. God is unchangeable not because he is inert or static like a rock, but for just the opposite reason. He is so dynamic, so active, that no change can make him more active. He is, he is act pure and simple. So again, what Comer and other critics fail to grasp is that God's immutability is not opposed to his vitality and his relationality. Rather, it's just the opposite. They think that God cannot change because he's lifeless and dead. Rather, in truth, God, can't, God cannot change because he is so full of life and perfect. He can't change because he's perfectly relational, right? His love can't increase or decrease and so on and so forth because it's already perfect, right? So there's no room for change. There's no need for change in a God who is pure act. So, again, the, the point is they think immutability means God's, oh, well, he's just this cold, distant figure when, in fact, it's the exact opposite. God is pure act. His love is maximum. His justice, so on and so forth. All these relational things about him are at their peak, so to speak. So, any questions? Okay. All right, let's move forward. Um, we'll cover this a little bit next week, so we'll zip through here kind of quickly. His third and final mistake is to conflate the doctrine of immutability with Greek philosophy. And this is the part that irritates me the most. He says, Yahweh isn't the unmover of Aristotle. He's the relational, dynamic God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this accusation he makes, he's like, no, this, that's the unchangeable God. That's the God of Aristotle, of Plato, and uh, Philo, and all the Greek philosophers. We're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what he's, the, the accusation that he's making 
It's nothing new, and it's called the Hellenization Hypothesis. The Hellenization Hypothesis. So to Hellenize was to adopt Greek culture. Greek culture in the ancient world was something like American culture would be today, right? American cultures just spread all across the world, where if you go to, like, Korea, it's like they're watching the same stuff, listen to the same stuff as we are here, so forth in China, and it's dominated the world. So someone would Hellenize when they would accept Greek culture. So the propagators of the Hellenization hypothesis claim that the church fathers, this is about the first 400 years of the church, the, the, the really influential theologians, that they uncritically baptized Greek philosophy into the scriptural witness, thus corrupting our understanding of God with doctrines like simplicity, with, uh, of immutability and impassibility, which we're only recovering from now some 1,500 years later. So you get the basic gist of what they're saying, that, well, we baptized this stuff, we brought it in uncritically, and it, it perverted our understanding of God. And now, only, you know, so far now later, we're getting back to the Scriptures, and we're divesting ourselves of that. So that's the argument. And you see how if you make that, it's like, of course, a Christian who's maybe not familiar with it can be like, yeah, like, of course, like, we're, we're about the Bible. So a full refutation of this argument is beyond the scope of our lecture, of course, but I'd encourage you to do a simple Google search, Hellenization hypothesis, and you can read others who've just totally dismantled this view. Um, this book here is called God is Impassable and Impassioned. It's got a lot of good stuff in there, and he's got a good chapter here on the Hellenization hypothesis. I just say that to say if anybody wants to read more into this or look more into it, I will photocopy this and send it to you, but let me know. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. He that looks at the sources. He dissects it all. It's really interesting, and he comes to the conclusion, along with many others, that that's just a lie. It's just not true. Rather, again, our man, Herman Bavink, it's a long quote, so I'll zip through it again. He says, The church was not the victim of deception. In the formation and development of the dogmas, the church fathers made generous use of philosophy. They did that, however, in the full awareness of and with clear insight into the dangers connected with that enterprise. They were conscious of the grounds on which they did it, and they did it with the express recognition of the word of the apostles as the only rule of faith and conduct. For that reason also, they did not utilize the whole of Greek philosophy, but made a choice. They only utilized the philosophy that was most suited to help them think through and defend the truth of God. They went to work eclectically and did not take any single philosophical system, be it either from Plato or Aristotle, but with the aid of Greek philosophy produced a Christian philosophy of their own. In the opinion of the church fathers, philosophy was the servant of theology. And that last little statement's the key to all of this. Philosophy is the servant to theology, right? The scripture presents its information about God. Remember we talked about last week, we have to put the pieces together because it's not a systematic theology textbook. We have to try to understand, okay, this is how this piece fits together and so on and so forth. And to fit the, fit the pieces together, you need tools. And the church fathers were very wise about what they were doing and saying, hey, we can use this to make sense of God. Just like today, I mean, it's no different when we take scientific terms, when we take even terms about, 
um, a theory of language. And we use those to help explain what the Bible's saying, not to change the meaning, not to alter it, but to help make sense of it. Think about it as if our understanding of God is up here, theology, the scriptures, and then there's all the other disciplines that help us to make sense of that, to inform it. Back in the medieval times, they used to call theology the queen of the sciences because for that reason it influenced them and it did its part. And So you get the point. Um, the argument doesn't stand up. So we'll come to that next week because, again, it's, it's uh, pretty, pretty out there today. So before we move on, what do you guys think? We're all on the same page there? Um, I think we all agree about the creature-creator distinction. Um, God being pure act, and then this last part about the philosophy. Any problems with that one? Yeah? Okay. All right. So now, how to read the Scriptures? How to read the Scriptures? Because there's these two sets of data. And so let's look at these verses. Exodus 32.14 says, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. That's the passage with Moses. 1 Samuel 15.11, I regret that I have, made king, I have made Saul king, for he has turned uh, back from following me and has not carried out my commands. I regret, in more older translations, it more accurately says, I repent. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then he relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. There's many other examples. I haven't listed them up here. Um, if you want them, you can come to me after, but I'll list them real quick. Psalm 106, verses 45, 44 and 45. Isaiah chapter 38, verses 1 through 6. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 10. Jeremiah 26, verses 3, 13, and 19. Again, Jonah chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And Amos chapter 7, verse 3 through 6. Now, a person who says God doesn't change, they will privilege these passages above the other passages we read at the beginning and say, no, God does change. And now you could theoretically jump and say, I'm going to go in the middle and there is change and so on and so forth. But we can't address all those passages, but I'd like to treat one, 1 Samuel 15, because I believe this text supplies us with the necessary framework to interpret all the other texts. It shows us how to read the Bible. It shows us how to read these statements. So, the context of the passage is King Saul's failure to wholly obey God's command. God wanted the spoils of war utterly destroyed, but Saul kept some back for himself and the army. It was, you know, he was like reasoning through it. He's like, why should we destroy all the cattle? We should keep them for ourselves. We can make good use of them. But God finds out, right, so to speak, and 1 Samuel 10, verses 15, verses 10 through 11 say, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Now, at first glance, we're led to think God has made some sort of mistake. He thought he was doing the right thing. He had the right intention. But it turns out Saul was just never the right guy for the job. And so God is saying, I thought I had good intentions, but they failed.
failed. And so when the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and he announces the decision that God has torn the kingdom away from him, Saul fell to his knees and he grabbed Samuel's robe. And as Samuel was walking away, the robe tore in Saul's hand. And so Saul snaps himself around and he says, excuse me, Samuel snaps himself around and he says to Saul, verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. So, you see what's going on there. So Samuel says, or God says to Samuel, I repent. I did the wrong thing. I, you know, I wish I wouldn't have done this. At least if we're just taking it on face value. And then next it says, Samuel says, God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't repent. He's not a man. So it's very confusing. From one breath to the next, the story changes. Now what's going on here? Again, I think the scripture is teaching us how to read these statements. The second statement is supposed to inform and help us make sense of what it means to say that God repented or that he regrets that he made this certain decision. Now, did God literally repent that he made a mistake and was unaware of the future, such that he made a mistake and was unaware of the future? No. But by using that term, the Scripture is trying to communicate something to us about God. Yes, right? There's That second statement helps us to understand the first one. Matthew Barrett, he's got a really good book, and I encourage you to read it, none greater. He says, his intention to use an experience humans can relate to, his intention, excuse me, is to use an experience humans can relate to in order to communicate his displeasure with the sinfulness of Saul's actions, especially since Saul is to be leading God's people in holiness. The language of regret is not meant literally, but serves as a signal indicating to the reader not only that God has judged Saul, but that God's plan all along has been to raise up a king after his own heart. So, the second statement informs and teaches us how to read the first one. Therefore, we still hold God is unchangeable. And so, when this scripture uses words like regret, even the passage in Exodus 32, God changed his mind about the harm that he was bringing. Again, Remember what we've talked about so many times, these anthropomorphisms, God using human uh, ways of action, human ways of knowing and speech to make sense of himself. So rather than saying, I think it makes sense if you use just, if you're reasoning theologically, it makes sense to say God is unchangeable. And then it makes sense to say, okay, we should read these texts in light of those other texts, that God does not change. So, Before I field any questions, I'll just top it off with one quote from James Dolezal. He says, Adherents to immutability generally understand the biblical depictions of change in God to be figurative and accommodated expression designed to convey something true about God, though not under a form of modality proper to him. So is that regret? Is there something really happening in God that it's trying to communicate? Yes. But should we say that God is... He doesn't know what he's doing or he's making mistakes. No, he doesn't change. So does that help maybe read some of those scriptures? Um, What do you think?
Yeah. Okay. Well, do you think God's plans change then? Let's ask the question. Okay, so like a lesson. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 10 says, that's what Paul says. The scripture was given that we might have an example not to repeat some of those steps. Romans 15, the patience and endurance of scripture that we might learn from that example. Okay, what's that? <laughs> right, yeah, those are, those are uh, uh, examples for us. Okay, so God's plans don't change. What about prayer? Does prayer change things. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's like our our God incorporates it. He uses our prayer for his plan. Okay. Any? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, um, well, I lost my, I lost my <laughs> it's, it's deep water, so no, it's okay. That's fine. Jono? Keep seeking, keep knocking. What were you going to say, Dad? Yeah. No. Yeah, I mean, it. I, I'm trying not to come down hard on either side because I don't. I I I know enough just to get myself in trouble with theology. Um, but the church fathers, the guys who were the ones really at the forefront of articulating this vision of Paul trying to make sense of it, they were firm believers in God's immutability, his unchangeableness and his nature and his actions and his plans and so on and so forth, and human um, free will and this dynamic change. And now I just being honest with you guys, I, 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 I look real hard and I just, I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of gave in and just said, all right, I'll, Maybe another lecture another time, because I don't, it's hard, and I don't know how to quite make sense of it. I think it's something having to do with God's transcendence, right? That God, God, God isn't an object within the universe. Almost exactly like your explanation, Jeff, like God's the biosphere, and then we're like within it. God's will, I don't know, don't take this for anything just other than conjecture. God's will is not... It doesn't compete with our will. You remember when Paul says, uh, 
1 Corinthians uh, 11 or, or, or not 1 Corinthians 9, that um, I labored more abundantly than all the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. So Paul's saying, I was doing it, but so was God. And so there's this like, they're not on the same level. God's action is deeper and higher, and ours is, you know, it's like, so I think something having to do with transcendence and God not being, his will not being like another will within the universe, but kind of the will that gives rise to everything else. I, I don't know. That's just a, an attempt, um, a bad one at that. But uh, so you get the point. And I don't want you guys to get overly caught up with this. I had a point in my life where I really did um, have a, a, a kind of a I don't know, not a crisis, but I struggled with it where I was thinking, why am I even praying? Like, what's the point of this? God's already determined it and so on and so forth. And why am I praying, Lord, save these people when he's already made up his mind? And that's just the wrong way to look at it. That's the wrong way to look at it. And you've always got to go back to those words and remember, we can't make sense of things. Like, this is, this is great and we need to do this theology, but it, it's, it's, it's still human speech. It doesn't get us all the way there. So don't ever fall into that trap of thinking like, well, why should I? They call Calvinists the frozen chosen. God's going to save them. It doesn't matter. We'll just, we'll just kick back. No, act, go. Paul says, I labored more abundantly, but it was God in me. So for whatever, for whatever that's worth, um, I don't want to push you guys too far in that direction. So lastly, I'm sorry, guys, I haven't looked at the time. We're right on, right on target. Um, let's just end with the practical import of this. We've labored to understand the doctrine. We've defended the doctrine. Now we're going to move to its practical import. Um, A metaphor that's used often for God in the scriptures is a rock. Rocks, of course, are the most stable and consistent things in the universe uh, or on the earth. A thousand years from now, our skyscrapers of steel and concrete and all the human ingenuity, they're going to be a pile of rust. Uh, all the super highways, L.A., New York City, all the great places, they're going to be nothing. Even the things that still stand today from the ancient world, they're all made out of rock. The Colosseum, the pyramids, anything that still stands that's been around for more than a thousand years is this most enduring thing. Um, and again, it's one of those prime metaphors for God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 2 um, verses 3 and 4, excuse me, say, for I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he, the rock. Psalm chapter 62 verses 1 and 2 says, My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. He is the rock because through all the tumults and upheavals of history, through the tectonic movements of kingdoms and empires, to the bereavements of everyday life, God remains the same. Though all things wear out and that they're going to be cast aside like a garment, God is unchanged. And for that reason, 
He's our shelter. And think about how practical, or how comforting and practical this doctrine is. You know, life right now in our world feels everything is changing so fast. Everything is in upheaval. Um, one day to the next, it's just, and we get stressed out because what's happening there, we get stressed out with the changes in our own lives. It seems like nothing holds. I think of, of all people, Karl Marx's words, all that is solid melts into air. Everything that's stable just evaporates, and it feels like there's no foundations. And I've often felt like that in my own life, right, that there's just, you know, where's the meaning in my life? Sometimes I wonder, you know, it's like, I can't make sense of my life. I can't, like, look back and see some sort of clear trajectory and say, oh, that's what God's doing. Oh, yeah, I'd like, I understand, Lord. Thank you for making sense of your ways to me. But I often feel actually the opposite, and I'm just, like, wondering. I don't, I don't know. It feels like it feels meaningless sometimes. But, listen, even though in this world there is no bottom, God is that bottom. He He's unchanging in all the change of life. Think of um, uh, Ecclesiastes. What does Solomon say? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It, it just That's this world. It's vanity. But beneath the foundationless, insubstantial world is the foundation, the rock of ages, right? Our lives and the world around us crumble and fade away, but we have a shelter in God. We can be shaken, the world can be shaken, but the hope that he's given us cannot be shaken. And you said it at the beginning. We're in a state of becoming headed toward this unchanging reality, right? Headed toward this blissful sea of divine being that's never disturbed, and it's like that's our hope. We get to go to that and be united with God in that sense where, you know, I think about time as well, and I'll... Um, I'm just rambling now, but with time, time is depressing because time, you can't hold on to anything. It, it, you lose it. You know, you can't hold on to yourself. You can't hold on ultimately even to your loved ones. You can't hold on to anything that matters to you, but it all goes, right? And that's like really depressing, but, you know, read Proverbs, read again Ecclesiastes. That's the way the world is. But, but the hope is that in God, all those moments hold together. It's an eternal present. It's not something for us that comes to us in moments, but we just participate in that one eternal divine moment. And like that's our hope, and all things hold together, uh, hold together there. So anyway, um, with that, any questions, any comments? Um, I wish Mike was here. He's out in Colorado. But uh, he said he'll have some questions for next week. So we'll give him his full due. Uh, yes? So, again, question. All these theologians are talking about giving opinions. And there is no opinion in the Old Testament. So it's kind of something that satisfies me. I'm not familiar with the Bible. Sure. So 
Well, I would, uh, I would, I partly agree and I partly disagree because I think, like, yeah, because I think, okay, to some extent, we've already said that that our speech and our knowledge will always fall short of the reality, so that it's always inadequate. Um, but we have to do it. We have to sort these things out because it's like there's no such thing as not having a theology, right? If you don't have a theology, you, all that means is you just have a bad theology. You're just not thinking things through. And we have to, um, partly because heresies, partly because these other things, and partly because, you know, we got to be obedient to those things, you know? So. so yes and no, but I agree. I agree, and I'm more on the side with you that we'll find out one day. Any questions? Anything else? Okay. All right, well, let's pray.